This is a Federal News Network podcast. Contractors who scrambled to deal with the Biden administration's vaccine mandates, well, now they're scrambling to figure out what to do now that the Supreme Court has struck it down, especially now that a Texas judge has halted the mandate for federal employees. We get perspective now from the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Stephanie, good to have you back. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. What do contractors think they're supposed to do now? Because this interplay of the one mandate ban, which is supreme, and the Texas level ban on the customer is unsure yet. And so it must be confusing. It is confusing. And we have sort of a holy trinity of of court decisions that came out. One was, as you said, in in early December for specifically federal contractors. And that was a nationwide stay out of Georgia at a district court down there um, saying that, you know, it is unenforceable. There's an injunction. Then the Supreme Court came out on January 13th and said the OSHA emergency uh, temporary standard is not allowed. And so that was a a strike against the Biden-Harris administration's push. But that Supreme Court decision also did say if there are specific workplaces and specific conditions, we would reconsider. And you saw that in the other part of their decision, which was to um, have the mandate in place for healthcare facilities that receive Medicaid or Medicare dollars. And then just last week, we saw that the Texas court judge in the Southern District of Texas say he was not going to rule on the federal contractor mandate because that was already under the nationwide stay. But now against uh, federal civilians, uh, there is a stay on the requirement for them to be vaccinated. All of this contributes to this maelstrom of what do federal contractors do? We have put out our perspective from the Professional Services Council to our PSC members and We've covered six things. One is what is covered under this ruling. That is just the the brief soliloquy I have right now, my little diatribe here on the Holy Trinity. The second was, you know, none of this really impacted the date, the date to be vaccinated for federal contractors, fully vaccinated, which means two weeks after your final dose of a vaccine was supposed to have been January 18th. That is still in some contracts. There's just no enforcement of it as long as the stay is in place. That brings me to our third point to our member companies, and that is a court decision could reverse that stay at any time with no notice. And so if your workforce is vaccinated, that's great. Don't necessarily think that this vaccine mandate is going away. Another circuit court could could uh, vacate the stay or otherwise modify it. And then finally, one of the key points that we raise is facilities access. Government-owned facilities can have their own set of requirements in order for someone to enter into or work at that facility. And so we've seen, for example, the Pentagon, there is a a vaccine or test mandate. So either you have to show that you are fully vaccinated or you can show a recent negative test or have an on-site test. There are lots of organizations that are taking similar tactics on facilities access, and the courts have not spoken out about that. Right. And companies still have the ability to require vaccines at their discretion for their employees. And are members taking different tacks there? So in September, when the president announced that he his administration would be mandating vaccines in certain communities, many companies went out and said, we have our own internal vaccine mandate because we saw this you know, train coming down the track and and we wanted to get ahead of it. That said, some of these companies have come out and said, well, we've vaccinated 90% of our workforce, 80% of our workforce. We've offered religious exceptions or medical exceptions to another certain percentage of it. So roughly, you know, anywhere between two and 10% of our workforce are now unvaccinated and uncovered, if I could say that, uh, unaccepted for, for religious or medical reasons. It's that 
minority of workforce that we're really talking about here. And some companies have decided to continue to push and others have decided to wait and see. It's a, it's a very interesting time to be watching the human resources aspect of this and coupled with the, the legal aspect of what's going through the court system. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council. So while that's all up in the air, uh, another kind of cannonball is rolling down toward contractors, and that is the EPA's advance notice of proposed rulemaking with respect to lowering the climate footprint or the carbon output, whatever you want to call it, by contractors. And this is going to be an issue, isn't it, coming up? It is. I'm just going to use the shorthand ANPR. It's an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. This came out uh, late last year and had to be extended. The comment period was extended for an additional month because there were lots of people and organizations offering feedback. My understanding is that uh, they have received 35,000 or so sets of comments, uh, and they're wading through those um, as fast as I'm sure as they can. This ANPR really asked for information regarding targeting, minimizing, and reporting greenhouse gas emissions. It was very focused on greenhouse gas emissions. What was interesting is they didn't offer definitions, but were rather soliciting um, input on how do you define the social cost of greenhouse gas emissions. There is an interagency working group tackling some of this, and, and, and their recommendation is already overdue to the White House. But as we move forward, what I find fascinating is that the FAR Council and, and you know the folks in the rulemaking process on the government side are really looking to industry to define what future requirements will be. And this is why so many stakeholders are offering input. And in this case, the 35,000 comments are unlikely to be 29,000 of the exact same identical one robo-submitted, but there might be some actual variation among the comments and some real nuance. Oh, absolutely. I think you're going to get both ends of the spectrum. You're going to get folks who are heavy greenhouse gas emitters talking about qualitative versus quantitative. You know, what are they doing in this space? You're going to get folks who are heavily invested in the petroleum area offering comments. And then you'll you get comments from from folks like us at the Professional Services Council really focused on how can we define this for contractors? How can we have folks looking at bid proposals have an apples to apples comparison as opposed to, you know, you're using your electric fleet over here, but you're making in company A, but you're making these reductions in your carbon footprint for company B. You know, how do you have a contracting evaluation team look at this and say, I know exactly which one is the better deal or, or the better uh, long-term uh, solution for, for, you know, minimizing the risk of climate change. It's tough. And, and so we've been arguing at the Professional Services Council, that we need better definitions for what the government is looking for. Uh, we've offered some recommendations or some thoughts on which uh, existing protocols are out there. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. There are, there's been a lot of work in this space. And so offering our recommendation to the government that, please, you know, just look before you leap. Make the requirements something that everyone understands, that everyone can take accountability and responsibility for, and use existing tools that are in the toolkit. Don't reinvent the wheel. Well, anyway, professional services firms are a bunch of people showing up in an office, or even if they are showing up in an office, and thinking and writing things and sending it back to the government, basically, or doing code and sending code over the internet. It's not like you're building fuel tanks and 
putting giant steel welded structures through annealing furnaces and then painting them and baking them in a furnace and delivering to the government. There's energy being used, but I don't understand what the how you can even calculate the so-called carbon footprint of a professional. It's like, what does a law firm use? Well, the building is heated and we drive to work. There is that piece of it, Tom, but you have to remember that oftentimes professional services are a business unit or an arm of a larger agglomeration or a corporation or a company. Um, and in some cases, we are looking really at the small businesses and what does this mean for them? And if they're going to face the same kinds of requirements, whether in reductions or just base uses of carbon, what does it mean for them? And so I take your point that professional services are often folks who, who sit at desks or work on computers or, you know, as you put it, code and, and engineer and, and do some research. I get that piece, but it is part of a, a larger, can I use the word, ecosystem of companies that um, that really this can impact quite heavily. Sure. We could say, well, our engineers stopped using electric calculators. We've gone back to slide rules because they use no energy. <laughs> well, they are made out of plastic. That could be a problem. Anyhow, we could use wooden slide rules <laughs> or a slate, really, go right. back old school. Yeah. Chalk. And while we have you, too, just briefly, there is a survey report that you teamed up with Maximus to talk to some federal CIOs. Any highlights we need to know about? Sure. You know, it's it's funny. We we do this uh, annual CIO, federal CIO survey, and we talk to scores of, of federal CIOs just to get their lay of the land. We team up with Maximus, who is a PSC member company. And, you know, it's funny. When we talk about data transformation or we talk about IT modernization, a lot of times it's a little amorphous. These federal CIOs know exactly what they're talking about and they know exactly what they need. So really prioritizing emerging technologies, facing some of the same workforce issues that the private sector is facing in terms of attracting and retaining talent. You know, a lot of times the government in the past had touted, you know, we've got this great benefits package. Well, a lot of private sector companies have pretty awesome perks and benefits as well. And so as you move forward, you know, they're trying to figure out how to incorporate innovation, how to use the existing authorities and tools and do a gap analysis of what tools and authorities they might need to access the innovation and tech that they need. The key takeaway for me are threefold. One is that the federal workforce, they've got to look at it from a person perspective um, as opposed to just looking at it as tech tech experts, broadly speaking. The second is to how to incorporate cybersecurity thinking when they're talking about CIOs. So sometimes that's between the CIO and the CISO, the, the chief information security officer, and how to make sure that those folks are talking to each other and incorporating cybersecurity thinking. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, how to prioritize critical emergent technologies. Things like AI, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, or we talked about the 35,000 comments that the government has gotten on this uh, advanced notice of proposed rulemaking for minimizing the risk of climate change. You know, isn't this a great use of AI to be able to comb through 35,000 sets of comments? Um, but how does the government do that? How do they how do they actually incorporate AI in a responsible way um, and sure. use data-driven analytics? So in a nutshell, Tom, we're, we're rolling out our, our report with Maximus uh, later today, and um, we hope that uh, we can answer lots of questions that this IT space has. All right. So basically, though, the finding is you need good meatware if you're going to have good software. I think that's that's one of the takeaways, Tom, yeah. All right. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President of Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, great to have you. Thanks, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on 
bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, but people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am 
try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, uh, interview and it it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. 
Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com.